to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea Wong with you with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, I have a very special guest, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Rich Berlin of Dream. Hello, Rich. Hey, Rhea. Richie B. (laughs) So I have to tell you, and I told you this already, you are the most quoted person on this podcast by various guests that I've had over the past year. That is not a good advertisement for your podcast. (laughs) Um. Well, we'll get into that for a second, but let's start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about the story of you and this amazing organization that you've built. I'm delighted to because here I tell it so much that people just kind of tune out or go to sleep. So the, my founding story here, I'm sort of a refounder of this organization. I got involved with Dream when it was called Harlem RBI in 1994. Myself and my two college roommates who had moved to New York decided we wanted to coach a Little League baseball team. Mm -hmm. So we found this like scruffy volunteer-led Little League in East Harlem that had built a field on the worst block in New York City. And we came up here and like met 15 knuckleheaded kids and they met their knuckleheaded coaches. And we had this crazy bad news bear story where we literally were like zero and 10 in our first 10 games. We were totally fed up with the kids. They were totally fed up with us. We turned the lineup upside down. The number one hitter was number nine, et cetera. Like we told the kids, you guys go out and coach yourself. We'll just get you to and from games. We're not in charge anymore. You're Mm -hmm. in charge. Good luck if you want to play, play. And the kids won like 20 straight games and we ended up in Yankee Stadium playing our championship game, which we lost 17 to one. But we played a game in Yankee Stadium, which is pretty cool when you're 13 or 23. And I got really hooked on these kids in this place, in this community, ended up working here for about a year after before going to grad school, came back, and the organization, I put that in quotation marks, had more or less gone out of business. The field was going to get bulldozed for housing development, and I needed something to do, and being the executive director sounded awesome. I was 25 and got to be in charge, and nobody knew you were head groundskeeper, too. And I certainly didn't know what being an executive director entailed. So that was one reason to take it. And we sort of restarted the place. We had uh, the first thing we had to do was save our field. So I basically became a community organizer for the better part of 18 months as we got our parents and our kids to raise their voices to save this space. They had worked very hard to turn into a beautiful place for kids to play. And we had one of these like nice Disney moments with 200 kids on the steps of City Hall when Rudy Giuliani was the mayor and sitting in the box seats at Yankee Stadium every night. So it wasn't such a good look for him to bulldoze a a group of kids' ball fields. Jim Dwyer, who's now the A1 columnist for The Times, was then writing for the Daily News and and did a two-page, two-page spread on our story with a banner headline, Build It and They'll Come Ruin It. That was enough to save our field. And then we had this big question, like, all right, we won. What do we do? And the choice then is sort of the same choice we've had ever since, which is like, all right, do we go build another ball field in another community and have a league and this, you know, it's great stuff, or do we dig in deeper here and address some of the needs, which were both like obvious and very prevalent 
amongst kids living in a really challenging neighborhood where virtually every institution in their life was failing them. So if you were close to this, that was an easy choice. So we started scaling in instead of out. And 25 years later, Dream is now a really deep, quote unquote, intervention or hopefully solution to some of the challenges that that face black and brown families growing up in really impoverished situations. And so our baseball league became summer learning and summer learning became year-round after school and year-round after school became sports-based youth development. And sports-based youth development became a charter school and a charter school became an extended day, extended year, whole child, community-based school that now stretches from pre-K through college and will now be replicating in, in other communities in New York City. And somehow this this all happened despite my leadership. And I feel very fortunate to that this place found me and that, that I've had such an amazing place to work all this time. That's great. So for folks who are not in New York City, can you tell us a little bit about Harlem as a community? Yeah. So we're, we started and we are sitting today in East Harlem, often called Spanish Harlem. It is, you know, really a community that is always always been a gateway for new immigrant families. And really, when Harlem RBI got here, it was really primarily Puerto Rican identity. Since that time, it's become much more mixed. Dominican families, a lot of Central American immigrants, and a significant African-American population. The community is really in many ways defined by the, the massive amounts of public housing. I think East Harlem has the second or third highest density of public housing of any community in New York City. It's virtually on every avenue from 96th Street up to 125th. You've got 13 to 21-story towers of public housing and, and obviously significant poverty that comes with that. The schools in this community are some of the most persistently failing in all of New York City, and you got to really work at that. And virtually, you know, every institution designed to support needy families is either is either failing or often antagonistic to, mm-hmm. to families' needs. That said, like every place, there's more potential than than things to complain about. This community is really culturally diverse and rich, and it takes its Hispanic and Latino heritage quite seriously. And mm-hmm. and whether that's whether that's what goes on here during the Puerto Rican Day Festival or the old timer stickball game or the Museum of the City of New York a few blocks away or connections to Central Harlem, which has a much more African-American identity. The ways this community has changed over the last two decades are really extraordinary. Next to all these housing towers are now million dollar condos and it's a little bit wild to see. But there's still a population of kids and families that is really vulnerable and in in need of meaningful supports and opportunities to lift themselves. And that's what we're here for. That's great. So let's dig into your own story a little bit. Am I correct that you at some point left Dream and then came back? I left for a year in the very early days. So I coached in 94. Uh I worked here for a year in 95 when Uh I had planned to go. I had long planned to go do a PhD. So I went to London for a year, came back to start a PhD program at Columbia, Got onto campus the first day, realized that was not what I was going to do with the rest of my life, needed a job. Then Harlem RBI had like literally like closed its doors. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't even an incorporated entity, but the quote unquote board had decided this was all too hard and we were going to give up. 
So I needed something to do. There was a guy who had been on the original board who had coached with me mm-hmm. and had sat on some prominent nonprofit boards. And he and I had lunch and he was like, you should be the executive director of this and I'll be your board chair. And I didn't know what that meant, but I, I did need a job. And again, like executive director sounded like a great title. And I had, you know, the time I spent coaching and doing whatever I was doing when I was the one employee here the previous year had been the most meaningful thing I'd ever done in my life, deeply connecting work. And I thought I'd do it for a year or two, and then I'd figure out what I want to do with my life. So I became the executive director on January 15th, 1997. So I guess we're coming up on like 22 years of that That um, in a couple months. So much for the one-year stint. Well, I'm still figuring out what I want to do with my life. I mean, aren't we all, though? Yeah, Yeah. every single day. So, okay, let's break it down. For those of you who don't know, Harlem RBI and Dream are very well known in New York. How big is your budget now? We're about a $40 million nonprofit now. Unbelievable. One of the things that I talk about a lot when I mention Rich Berlin and Dream is, oh my God, that board is amazing. So talk to me about how you went from this almost closing nonprofit with a board chair who's like, I don't know what a board chair is to this amazing powerhouse board that really helps you bring in all the resources that you need to run this place. Yeah. So particularly in the early days when like I was either one of the only staff or one of very few staff and and sort of de facto like the expert in the organization. And I just mean expert by the one who'd been here the longest. I didn't have like peers or mentors in the organization or, mm-hmm. or colleagues really. And so I started finding that in board members. And really, I didn't have any plan for that. But what what I knew is like we needed leaders who were like truly committed to this thing. And mm-hmm. I had seen the first version of the board which was a group of very well-intentioned, but ultimately like people who didn't take the idea of trusteeship seriously. Like it's their, Mm -hmm. like it is technically their organization. And obviously if I'm doing my job, they report to me more than I report to them, but they hire and fire me. So Mm -hmm. that's, you know, you might as well find some people you trust to do that and want to spend some time with. But really our board, like it's, it's amazing but it's been a fairly slow evolution. Like there haven't, you know, there've been some occasional big steps in the process, but really all I've ever tried to do is recruit new board members who sort of outperform the majority of the board. So we're always mm. looking we're always looking for people who can kind of punch in the top 10% of our board. And if you keep doing that and keep cycling out the bottom 10% or the bottom 50%, that over time, like, that just keeps moving forward. Mm -hmm. And, like, absolutely, we measure that in good part by the financial commitments people make. But actually, much more so, like, what sort of time and mind share people are willing to lend to this. So mm-hmm. we typically don't look for board members who have other competing causes. We typically don't look for board members who aren't going to show up mm-hmm. because of whatever other crazy things go on in their life. And we look for people who are sort of highly competitive and accountable. Mm-hmm. About 15 years ago, we started giving our board members report cards. That did not go over well at the beginning, but they were sort of all over me around 
different accountability measures. And we were a pretty unsophisticated organization and not much of a data function. And like, mm-hmm. I don't know, accountability, we're still here and mm-hmm. the lights are on at that stage in our growth. But I was like, well, I'm good with that. But like accountability should exist all the way up and down the organization. So mm-hmm. like, let's come up with something for you guys too. Mm-hmm. And I got a few board members behind that and the grumpy ones went along. But this crazy thing started happening, which is they started like paying attention to how they were performing relative to their peers. Mm. And like ever since then, like, and this goes for everybody on the board from CEOs of multinational companies to to other folks, like people when they do something meaningful or important and kind of out of the ordinary, there's like this, that goes on my report card, right? And they are only half joking. Everyone um, wants a gold star. Everyone wants a gold star. So yeah. I love straight A students. Yep. If they were straight A students when they were 14, they're straight A students when they're 54. Right. And they pay attention to this stuff. And that sort of just builds a culture of high performance and expectation and mm-hmm. accountability. As we've grown, I would say the board is tiered somewhat to an executive committee who really runs the place and everybody else who's sort of responsible for money and something else. But that's been a good mix. But at root, all we're really trying to do is always recruit to the top of the pile Mm -hmm. and to be really transparent with people. And and like, you don't have to be on this board forever. That's okay. But if you're going to be on it, like you need to be on it. And and if, if not, well, you know, we'll create a spot for somebody else. So many things to unpack here. But so my question is, and I, and I suspect this is the case for a lot of my listeners, they're at a point where they're struggling to find the right kind of board members and finding the right board members who understand the financial commitment in addition to the time. And I'm wondering, are you now at a point where there's a flywheel? Like, do you feel like you're struggling with the same kind of problems that you did, say, 10 years ago? Yeah, but just at a different level. I mean, I don't like really think there's much different about like the governance and fundraising challenges at any size of organization. Like you're just trying to punch one stage, you're like punching with lightweights and now you're punching with heavyweights, but like you've got to have a pipeline of people. You want to pay a lot of attention to culture. You want to be really clear about expectations. Mm -hmm. You want to be really easy to do business with so Mm -hmm. that they feel successful. Mm -hmm. And you want to give them opportunities to be the ambassadors you want, to connect mm-hmm. them to the organization. So mm-hmm. they're just as passionate about it as, as we are inside. That's no different. The only difference is like 20 years ago, if you were willing to make a $5,000 contribution, that was like amazing. And today, like, we're not going to talk to you unless you're six figures or higher. And we have other places to put people who who are going to participate in other sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. If there's probably like a single mandate that's changed in my mind is that I feel like the mantra around working to diversify our board that existed 20 and 10 and five years ago is like a mandate now. Mm -hmm. I think we're just at this point where you got to recognize it's actually a competitive disadvantage Mm -hmm. if, if you don't do that. And I do mean diversify in all the ways possible, Mm -hmm. certainly people of all the categories you want. But I also think what people do Mm -hmm. also is really important. I think in New York, we tend to build finance heavy boards. And I started with a board of people who were mostly like from publishing. Mm, And and that was bad because that business was dying. And then we got to lawyers and that was better than publishers, but it wasn't as good as banks. And then we got to finance and that was great because they make all the money. Mm -hmm. But 
well, now there's tech and now there's entertainment yeah. and now there's like all these new industries. And in a certain way, like if you get too deep in one sector, you're like really limiting yourself because as wealthy as the networks may be, the networks are sort of closed yeah. too. And so we want to push out. But the other piece is we do want people in our boardroom who come from the place our kids come from, who look like our kids, mm-hmm. who can connect with their experience more deeply because I think the challenges. The governance challenges and leadership challenges we'll face as an organization as we grow are going to become increasingly complex and political. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have people who've sat in the seats where, where our kids and families sit, you're going to have a tough time getting that right as often as you need to get it right. What would you say about the dichotomy that a lot of folks feel and the trade-off between getting folks of color on the board and people of financial capacity? Yeah. I think it is a tension you just have to confront. So Mm -hmm. like for us, I think we can say this, like you can't, if you are a white male in finance, you have to come with such a huge check to be on this board that like we're kind of not even talking six figures for that person. We're talking about someone with a seven figure give get capacity which is an, an amazing like luxury of a place to be in. But we have a finance network good enough to get to whoever we want to get to in that world. And like we don't need more white men on our board. And white men are some of my best friends. But like that's just not whatever it does on the money side, like unless you're coming with just a huge wallet, that's mm-hmm. not going to move it. What we need is is people with diverse networks. Mm-hmm. So we've just made that decision. That can be uncomfortable for mm-hmm. people. Not such an exciting thing for some people to hear. I've had to more or less say that to people's faces mm-hmm. at certain times. And I can, I guess there are more and less sensitive ways to say that. So I guess I th- what I think about that is like whatever stage of growth your organization is, you can make that choice, but it's a relatively recent choice for us to make. Mm-hmm. And it's not like the financial demands of this organization are shrinking and it, and it wouldn't be lovely to have somebody bring a $50,000 check with relative ease, but we've got a limited number of seats and we've got an increasingly broad mandate of, of what trusteeship and governorship means mm-hmm. and it doesn't just mean money if you can do something transformative financially we want you here and we need you here if you're a little bit in the median or something below the median i would rather have someone who can who can run some other place mm-hmm. and how do you think about that for diverse board members i think i think a little bit more holistically and longer term. So, right, we will, but I can't, I had someone will give a, like a real life example. Somebody in finance, little different role in finance, somebody in finance, African-American male, Afro-Cuban male, actually, who expressed interest in this. And we started talking about the board and, mm-hmm. and he came back and he was like, he told me exactly what his philanthropic and financial commitments were. He was super transparent with me. And he said, like, I can't do the number you want to do. Mm-hmm. And he, he sort of said a ridiculous, he's like said, I can do a five figure number. Mm-hmm. So I kind of challenged him on that. I was like, well, that doesn't make sense to me. I think like, A, you can do more, but B, like, how about we spend the next six months, like showing how easy we are to do business with. Cause mm-hmm. I bet you're a person who regularly under promises and over delivers. And if you can let 
if you can let our development team in the door mm-hmm. and start to really go at your network, I bet we can turn your 10,000 into 100,000 like pretty quickly and mm-hmm. easily too. Mm-hmm. Like even just through a couple key relationships, which he's not even thinking of as like his. Right. I'm like, no, that's because of you. They're going to make this gift because of you. Right. right. And so if you can get the head of your firm to write a six-figure check because he loves you and values you – and you can sit on the board and, you that's know, on your report card. like that's on your report card. Yeah. That counts. And I think those sorts of conversations can be like hard to have, like mm-hmm. that level of transparency. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's also another characteristic of what we're looking for from our leaders is people. Nobody's in it like to have their name on the stationery. Nobody's in it to like right. game something like they want to be here because they want to have impact. Mm-hmm. I want them here if they can have impact and I want to be clear with them with what impact would look like and how we would accomplish it together mm-hmm. and you either get there or not. And like, so the other thing about this guy is like, yeah, I think he has access to much more wealth than he's thinking about mm-hmm. or thinking about take that he would take credit for. Right. And the other thing is what I do know is he's got access to an amazing network of other diverse professionals. Mm-hmm. And once we get into that, like then we're kind of really cooking with fire because what what I have is a really long pipeline of like of Caucasian people who would like to be on this board and a really small pipeline of people of color and women who want to be on this board. Right. And like having a couple new people who bring large networks of people who have not yet like found their cause or made their commitments would be a really big deal. So I want to go back when you say easy to do business with, what does that look like exactly? I just think it means like, it's like this. They're like, I want you, like, I want access to your network. Let's just say we're talking about fundraising. I want access to your network. Mm -hmm. And in a perfect world, you are going to write a really heartfelt letter. You're going to send it to like your 25 best prospects. Mm -hmm. You're going to call them all. You're going to ask them to dinner, like on and on and on. But in an imperfect world, we'll write the letter. I'll send it myself. I'll copy you on the email and just ask for a meeting. And all I need you to do is like write a one-line email to this guy saying, I would really appreciate if you would take this meeting. Right. Either of those, like, and there's lots of stuff in between those two things. So like as much of like the shoe leather and admin and grunt work of this you want us to do is as far out of the range of fire you want to be from the actual ask you need to be like that's okay with us Mm -hmm. like you give us access on whatever terms you're comfortable with and we will go to work with that and hopefully in addition to sort of like making it just easy to sort of do and execute on I hope we'll also in the process like make it a little more fun for you and not whatever your relationship is with asking people for favors or money or support Mm -hmm. that like you'll actually like see it as less of a burden and more something prideful and connecting and like inspiring to you and the people around you as opposed to like this hard thing you have to do. Yeah. My husband says something brilliant. He says, and I'm giving my husband credit. It's not weird unless you make it weird. Yeah. Right. Right. And look, and everybody's got their shit with money. Like, like, you know, But all you can do is, like, be direct about it and and sometimes be more than direct about it. I mean, like, I, to our closest donors and board members, like, we have conversations about money, which are probably cross the line of appropriate. 
but I think there's like enough in the tank to do that. Well, Rich, I don't think anyone's ever accused you of being a shrinking violet. No, appropriate is not my brand. So that's <laughs> very that's unbrand about right. for you. Yeah, yeah. Last question about board because it's fascinating. What do you say to a board member who is like, look, I'm good with the commitment, but I'm not going to ask my network. I'm not going to open it. I'm not going to ask my friends. As long as you're willing to foot the bill, like so be it. I mean, what I'll say is like probably the best board member I've ever had is one of those people. Mm-hmm. He's He doesn't not ask anybody, mm-hmm. but he's one of these people who's like more generous than everyone. So right in this world of transactional philanthropy, he sort of uses it is just much cheaper mm-hmm. for me to do it myself right. than like to ask people and and, and it's going to cost me around, like right. like why are we playing this shell game so mm-hmm. what he will do is he will pursue people who are non-transactional like right. some anyone who's like okay this not only will this not cost me this can be a net positive for right. everyone but he's but those you know like far and few between in the world he comes yeah. from there's a role for, like that's fine if like we're clear about what that means for you. Right. Like you can't be that person if your give doesn't get to the place. Mm-hmm. And you can be that person as re- pertains to money, mm-hmm. but you can't be that person as pertains to other relationships, mm-hmm. which can bring needed resource, whether that's professional expertise or another organization with a connection or your school alumni office or like the 97 other things that are meaningful ways for trustees to to get engage. So, I mean, if you want to be a person who just writes your own check, I have a board for you. It's the Home Run Leadership Council and you can be there and like, I'll invite you to our events and Mm -hmm. we can like play golf or come watch a baseball game or whatever. But that's not, if that's, if you just want to write a check, like I can make you feel good about that, but I don't need to give you a board seat for that. Right. So what I'm hearing is just total clarity and total transparency up and down the line. Around um, money, around relationships, around expectation. Right. I mean, the same way you hopefully treat everyone in your networks. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I find that with boards, people get really weird about it because of the power dynamic and the money. And like, I get people it. Have shit I, I, tell, I mean, like, again, right. Like, they're your boss. Yeah. But I like probably the greatest compliment I ever got is a guy on our board, super high powered amazing human being like just like uber person Mm -hmm. and we were in a meeting and we were talking about trusteeship and the board and i was like well you guys are my boss and he goes doesn't feel that way (laughs) and like a hundred percent half kidding right but he meant it as a compliment right like right he's like you are always pushing us you know, in the ways that you can. And Mm -hmm. like, and what he was saying is, I feel accountable to you. I feel accountable to the organization. It's not, I don't really view it as board members' jobs to like, to hold themselves accountable. Mm. Like hopefully you build that over time, Mm. but ultimately like they are working for us and to the point of making it easy to do business with, like Mm -hmm. our job to be clear with them on how they can create impact mm-hmm. helps them create impact. Yeah. And, and like, it's hard to do that if you're not being direct. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this one question. What is the relationship and role of the board chair and the executive director? Yeah. I mean, that's, I've, I'm on my fourth board chair mm-hmm. in 22 years. Wow. That's um, amazing. It's, and like every single one of them has been extraordinary at the role. 
every single one of them has been like both uh, like this combination of incredible boss mentor friend partner Mm -hmm. every single one of them has like challenged me in ways professionally that probably nobody else has ever challenged me Mm -hmm. and maybe like most importantly like every single one of them regularly disagrees with me on lots of stuff Mm -hmm. and has in like literally 22 years, I don't think I've ever had a moment where like whatever we've disagreed upon behind closed doors comes out the other side. And mm-hmm. that doesn't mean like that, like we walk out of a, of a contentious space and they're not on the phone with four or five other board members syndicating like, right. how are we going to move rich on this? Or should I be moving or do we have to move? Yep. But it just means that like when you get to the board table and it's time to, for action, mm-hmm. we're we are aligned, the board is aligned. Yep. And I would say that's particularly true with my board, the board chairs I've had. But there's also even, we tend to have these um, like kitchen cabinets mm-hmm. too. Like, so there's our chair, there's an executive committee. But even within the executive committee, there there's sort of two or three people that mm-hmm. I've always tried to keep closest. The smartest one the richest one, the most like, I don't know, all the things you can be Mm -hmm. like, usually the person who's going to be the next chair Mm -hmm. is in that group too. Mm -hmm. So to me, like, I don't want to make big, big, hard decisions without like a few voices who have like way more gray hairs or at least miles under them than, than I, you know, than me. Let me ask you about the role of the ED in picking the next board chair. Because what I hear you talking about is, I mean, and I felt this as well, it's a little bit of like puppet mastery behind the scenes where you're shifting people and oh, you're yeah. like pouring suggestions into people's ears. I mean, it's total ears. kabuki theater. Yeah. I mean, completely. And that, I would say like the day, <laughs> our current board chair, I think like the day he was named board chair, we had a conversation about, who would be the next chair. Mm. And he was like, he was like a tiny bit taken aback by it. And then he was like, well, obviously, of course we should be like yeah. thinking about that. Cause we can't, I would say before this one, the general way we worked was like, I just went around and I just told all the board members, everyone take one step back and don't tell David or Ken. Like it was sort of, it was obvious who needed to be the board chair. It was super obvious that neither of them were sort of ready for it or wanted to step into that role. Mm-hmm. So we all just like made them stuck there kind of with a, a little bit with them knowing, but mostly without them knowing. And then they were there and then they did great and all that stuff. This yeah. latest one was, I would say, actually a little more openly just done like more collaboratively and mm-hmm. more collectively. And But that really had to do with the stage of organization where we were like there were, mm-hmm. I remember going to a guy who like, Sort of like looks more like the board chair on paper, mm-hmm. but just doesn't have time to do it. And he was mm-hmm. like, I literally told him what the plan was. He's like, well, why, why aren't I the board chair? And I was like, because you don't have time to be the board chair. Right. And because of this. And he was like, oh, right. Yeah. So this guy's okay. Yeah. Just checking. Like, I'm still the most important one, right? <laughs> Everyone wants a gold star. Everyone wants a gold star. Yeah. But so to follow up on this, and we have to wrap it up, but... What would you say to an executive director that has a board chair that isn't chairing, isn't leading, or that they're not totally yeah. aligned? I mean, with? look, you like you get the board chair, you get the board you deserve. Mm. Like you, like mm-hmm. if you can't move your board, then you should find another job. Yep. If you don't feel like you are leading them, yeah, they can hold you accountable, and they can 
evaluate you and they can have lots of say in big organizational decisions, but ultimately like the CEO carries the vision of the organization mm-hmm. and leads the organization and the board like has to be just has to keep you out of trouble, but his primary job is to be wind at your back, is to be fuel. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the ability to direct the wind or get enough fuel in the tank, then you don't, you're either the wrong CEO or they're the wrong board or you're in the wrong organization. But like I sort of right, consult with peers and friends who mm-hmm. get in these situations and I'm like, I'll have this conversation with you once, maybe twice. But like the third or fourth time, like what are we, like you either can't, you can't do it. Right. And maybe you can't do it because of them. Maybe you can't do it because of you. But but it's not getting done, so you should go find something else to do. Like, besides come and whine about your board chair. I know. I've had the same conversation so many times. Yeah. I'm like, well, I'm like, what's what are changing? We, like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 All right. Rich, this has been fascinating. I'd love to have you back on. We are out of time. Thank you so much for sharing. It's so good we to didn't, see you. We didn't do any of, like, the dirt. I mean... <laughs> That's part two. Okay, that'll be part two. All right, thanks so much, Rich. Thanks for having me.